You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. And this month we have been talking about abortion. Now if you missed last week, so did I. Because my guest was unable to make it and I was just getting back from New Orleans. I had a wonderful time out and I got to do some great apologetics work at the uh, at the conference. If you want to know what that was about, just go back to the show from <clears throat> at the end of last December where I interviewed Bob Stewart, and yes, he is handsome. And we talked about that conference, and it was just a wonderful time. I really want to thank Bob Stewart and Von Putten and everyone else there who was responsible, our driver, who drove us around constantly without complaining about it, though I'm sure I was in many ways obnoxious. But it, it was just so wonderful to get to serve. And when I came back, I, I did have some kind of science infection, I think, because we had a cold snap, so I said, I'm just going to pass on a show day. My guest had cancer, so you didn't miss anything last week. But we're focusing all on abortion this month, since January in America is the month of Roe v. Wade. And we've talked a lot about the, the uh, abortion situation here in America, not just this month, but last year as well. But do we really think about what's going on beyond America. We often can lose sight of the rest of the world. And so I decided this time I would have a, one of a, my friends from across the pond come on the show. And that's Peter D. Williams. who is the, He is the executive officer for Right to Life, the UK's premier Right to Life charity and campaigning group. Peter works closely with the all-party parliamentary pro-life group for legislators in the UK parliament who campaign for Right to Life and engages in public debates in print and media for the dignity of all human beings. He's a former atheist who reverted to Catholic Christianity via the period of dissenting from the Church's teachings, during which he was also a radical supporter of legalized abortion. Peter also moonlights as a Catholic Christian apologist, arguing the case for the gospel in the Church in the British media. He lives and works around London. So, Peter, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hi, great to be with you. We thank you for joining us across the pond. I know it's a bit late where you are. It, as we film this, uh, record this, I should say, it's a little after three for me in the afternoon and a little after eight in the evening for you. That's right. No, but happy to be here. Yes, this is part of your moonlighting, isn't it? <laughs> if you like. It's certainly part of my rights life role as well, so it's all good. Okay. Well, let's uh, find out a little bit more about you and how you got to be doing what you're doing, because it looks like you've taken a major shift. You've gone from being a radical supporter of legalized abortion to now being executive officer for Right to Life. How does that happen? <laughs> well, it happened over time. Um, 
when I was a teenager, I was very, very um, in favour of uh, abortion. Um, I, I, was, I would say I was pro-abortion, not merely pro-choice, pro-abortion, in the sense that I, I affirmed even the actualization of choice, not merely the potential to have a choice. Um, but I, was, I, I just thought, oh, it's just a blob of cells, who cares? You know, it's just a, the woman's right to, to choose what she wants to do with it. And uh, that changed, actually, when I was presented um, in an RE class, funny enough, uh, we were talking about the ethics of abortion. In, in British secondary education, uh, we'll discuss things like ethics alongside things like uh, religion and other such things in various different schools. And one of the things that was presented to us was um, the, the, the image of a, an aborted baby. And that had a big impression upon me because I'd never really uh, thought of the unborn child as another human being. Um, I realized that people thought that, but I just thought that was, you know, a bit daft and superstitious or whatever. Um, but seeing that image brought it home to me. So within 10 minutes, I would say, I completely U-turned, I completely changed my mind, um, just because it forced me into thinking about the humanity um, of the unborn child. And I would just add that I think that we need to be very careful with the use of such images. I certainly wouldn't uh, want to use them outside um, certain contexts like abortion uh, clinics and things like that. But ultimately, I think in that case, um, and certainly in academic settings where people can sit down and think about these things, that's the sort of thing that forces someone to think about the humanity of the unborn child, which is the central issue. Uh, so that changed me to becoming very, very, very supportive of the right to life. Um, and thinking through it more, I became more, ever more so. But it was only about a decade, uh, yeah, about a decade later that I had um, gone to university. I had left university. I had uh, had a job. And then I um, was offered, when I left my old job, um, a position at Right to Life um, by Phyllis Bowman, who was the great um, doyen, the great veteran of the Right to Life movement in this country. She was um, formerly the executive director of uh, Society of Protection of Unborn Children. Uh, she had been a long time, decades long, um, campaigner for the right to life of the unborn child and for vulnerable people. And so she became, as it were, my mentor um, in sort of taking me on at right to life. And sadly, she passed away um, about two years ago now. And uh, that was a great loss to the entire right to life movement in the United Kingdom. But um, that was a great opportunity for me to learn a lot. And I'm st I still am. I'm still just very much involved with the right to life movement here um, and in a much more direct role. So, yeah, so that's how it's happened, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I kind of really agree with what you were saying about being cautious with the use of images and mm. where and how we use them. One image that we have over here, for instance, is a video of a silent scream, and I'm mm. sure you're familiar with it. Very much so, yeah. And uh, honestly, I have never seen the video. And the reason for me in my case is I am just entirely way too squeamish. If my wife tried to show me a paper cut, I would start feeling woozy immediately. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, this is something I probably shouldn't be seeing. But for others, I understand that, yeah, that has to be a real-world moment because you are confirmed with that reality and then say, okay, what do I do at this point? Exactly so. Exactly so. Are you familiar with uh, what uh, P.Z. Myers, however, had said about those pictures? I mean, he saw him and said, it doesn't scare me because I only see meat, and I do not find meat scary. Yeah. Well, this is it. It doesn't necessarily affect everyone in mm -hmm. the same way. Uh, for me, I was open-minded enough in a way that P.Z. Myers, we would say Zed, uh, so I'll call him P.Z. <laughs> P.Z. Myers, uh, he's not open-minded um, mm -hmm. in a way. Way towards a lot of subjects. Um, I, I don't consider him a great thinker at all. No. 
Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all that he was completely closed to being shown those images. I was at that point. I was open-minded enough at that point to let the image sort of affect my uh, understanding and, and inform, rather, my understanding of the way um, that we think about the unborn child. But a lot of other people won't be. Um, and particularly, I think that those sort of images affect men more than they do women. Uh, women have generally thought about these issues in more depth mm-hmm. than men, because for them it's a, it's a present reality that they could one day get pregnant and then have to think about the consequences of that. Yeah. A lot of men, um, I think, don't think about it in a great deal. I mean, a lot of guys are happy to think it's, her, it's up to her, it's her business, it's not really mine, I don't want to have any responsibility. It's very easy to think that way. Mm. Um, other guys have just not think, thought about it because they don't really want to think about it. It's just an uncomfortable subject that would rather fill their mind with football or whatever it is that they think about. Um, so when you present men often with these images, um, they will think, oh, crikey, you know, I didn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd never really thought of it like that. But if, like P.Z. Myers, they are ideologues who already have uh, a particular approach to the issue of abortion and the right to life and, and other such things, then there's not really much you can do with such a person unless they're open-minded to consider the the arguments on an ethical level and it's actually the ethical arguments that I tend to concentrate on because anyone can access those um, and you just have to show them at the very least you just show them that, that they're illogical and you mm. force them to um, because most people do believe in human rights mm. you just you either force them to admit that they're illogical and they have they're happy to exist in that tension or it leads them to rethink their entire position um, mm-hmm. With people like P.Z. Myers who knows what, you, what happens if he comes to the logical end of his thoughts but uh but with a lot of other people, I think most other people, you show them the logic, you show them that if they believe in human dignity, if they believe in human rights, then they have to approach that um, as something inclusive for all human beings. Mm. Uh, if they don't believe that, then that's rather scary, and I think most people would find that rather scary. So, mm. so it's the ethical arguments you need to concentrate on rather than uh, necessarily showing people images. But images, as I say, can be helpful in certain settings to certain people. Mm. You just need to be very careful in discerning what those settings rightly are and who the kind of people that will be affected uh, can be helped to come to a full understanding of human dignity. Now, when you were pro-abortion, what exactly do you think your reasons for it were? I mean, was it just love of freedom or was it wanting yeah. to have sexual freedom entirely or what? Well, at that point, I had become a Christian. Okay. Uh, I had well, I had reverted to um, my Christianity. Um, I was baptized as a baby, uh, mm-hmm. and in Catholic Christianity, we believe that you become a Christian when you're baptized. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I came back to practicing Christianity, to the extent that I was practicing, because I wasn't very good at practicing it at the mm-hmm. time, I was very ignorant. Um, I I was very dissenting. I, I would just make up make it up as I go as I went along, really. And so, um, so that just tells you my, my sort of religious journey. But mm-hmm. ultimately. The reason why I was as in favour as I was of, of legalised abortion was because I was very libertarian. And I don't actually think that libertarians ought to be in favour of legalised abortion. I, I would argue to a libertarian that if you believe in the non-aggression principle, if you believe that every human being uh, should have freedom, then you do surely have to believe that abortion is in fact an assault on another human being. It is coercive violence, and therefore it should not be allowed in the same way that we don't allow murder, we don't allow any number of other things that Mm -hmm. involve coercion. So if coercion is really the thing you object to as a libertarian, you should be as much against abortion as as I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And I describe myself politically as a libertarian conservative. Uh, I don't think you have to be uh, a conservative to be in favour of the right to life. I don't think you have to be libertarian. 
um, and the organization that I represent um, presents the right to life in so, as something which is inclusive to people of any background, whether they mm-hmm. be religious, non-religious, whether they be Christian, non-Christian, whether mm-hmm. they be uh, whatever political persuasion, social democrat, socialist, liberal, conservative, mm-hmm. whatever you are, if you believe in basic human dignity, you can believe in the right to life. And that mm-hmm. philosophical case is accessible to everyone, regardless of their background. Um, so that's, that's the position that I take on sort of the, the political question and the sort of the philosophical question. I would never want people to think that in order to be right to support the right to life, they have to um, become a Christian. Right. Uh, that that's not true. But I think if you are a Christian, then certainly it would be grossly inconsistent, as I was grossly inconsistent, um, to not be in favour of the dignity and right to life of every human being. It is important for us to realise that this isn't a Christian, non-Christian, right. or Catholic, Protestant, or anything, or atheist, theist issue that the very arguments you're using today for the most part say anyone could put forward these arguments right that's absolutely right now when you were talking about how you were a christian at the time and you were still pro-abortion did get me think that in our country over here at least in america that our young people i think for the most part are doing something very similar that they're just really not educated on what their Christianity is and what it has to say about the rest of the world. That's why so many of our Christian youth have uh, no problem with, say, supporting redefining marriage or um, cohabitation before marriage together or just want to say, well, we, we shouldn't judge people because they're not very trained up in their Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's that's very true. Um, I should make very clear at this point that I'm talking uh, from a personal perspective uh, rather than representing right to life when I talk about those kind of issues because we, right. I, we believe very strongly that you shouldn't uh, engage in mission creep, that you shouldn't sort of confuse uh, issues like the redefinition of marriage with uh, right to life issues. As you say, mm. people can be right. very in favour of the right, uh, redefinition of marriage and, and not uh, and, and, and yet still agree with me when it comes to the right to life. Uh, mm. Those are distinct um, issues and distinct areas but regardless of that um, speaking as a Christian um, I do think that there is a crisis there has been a crisis over the last oh, 60 years now or, mm. or more of what we would call catechesis in the Catholic Church which is to say teaching about what Christian teaching is um, there is not a great deal of information or, or at least um, I think the, the local church or the local parish doesn't give enough education to Christians about what follows from Christian principles, what the gospel really is, what um, the Didache, that is to say the teachings beyond the basic gospel message are, as parts of the deposit of faith, as part of what Christ passed down to the apostles who passed down to their successors, etc. Um, that is not given anywhere near the rigour and the um, extensive teaching that ought to exist. Mm-hmm. And consequently, you're sending people out into a cultural atmosphere where they don't have the resources to say why they, you know, may support um, the historic Christian position on whether it be the, the life ethic or whether it be sexual ethics or whether it be um, the relationship between the church and the state and, and religious freedom. Um, there's very little uh, teaching given to those issues. And so consequently, there's very little uh, that the average Christian can really do when they approach that maybe in, in what you would call college or we would call university. Yeah. Um, that's a real problem. And it's been a huge problem in, in the United Kingdom, certainly in the, the Catholic Church, and I know in the Anglican Communion and, and other sort of Protestant ecclesial communities as well. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's the same over here as it is there, I think, mm. very much so. Yeah, based on what you were saying about 
you're speaking from a more personal perspective here. For anyone who is listening, we we're to be discussing Christian concepts sometimes throughout here because this is a Christian podcast. But like a like a Peter said earlier, that the arguments we're using are not specifically Christian. They're simple philosophy. They're accessible to everyone. That's now, right. when we uh, look at the uh, history here in America, if we were to point to any date. It would be January 22nd, I believe, 1973, Roe v. Wade, and that was where everything very changed in the abortion debate. So we, we're constantly talking about Roe v. Wade yeah. over here. Do you have anything that's a counterpart to that over there? Certainly we would. I mean, for us, the date would be the 27th of October, 1967, or else uh, the 27th of April, 1968, because... The 27th of October that year would um, be the royal assent that was given to what's known as the Abortion Act of 1967, Mm -hmm. which essentially legalized abortion. Um, And then that came into effect on the 27th of April 1968. Um, But I should just explain the background of that. In in this country, we didn't have, as you have had, um, as it were, a court case that decided the issue for us. We went the legislative route. And prior prior to 1967, there were two acts that affected the issue of abortion. There was the Offences Against the Person Act of 1861, which is still in the books, um, and that made abortion a felony. Um, It it was an act that consolidated all the criminal law in the United Kingdom prior to that, which was a bit of a mess. It had just been law after law after law, accumulated over many centuries. And this essentially consolidated all of it into one manageable act. Um, And that made abortion a felony. Um, The Infant Life Preservation Act which happened in 1929 um, added to this because there was what was known as a lacuna within the law a lacuna is is as it were a legal loophole Mm -hmm. and in the earlier part of the 20th century there had been a woman who had killed her baby um, while she was giving birth now this was a problem um, it was a barbaric act but it was a problem for prosecution because it didn't strictly speaking fall under infanticide which would be when the baby's born it wouldn't but it also didn't strictly fall under abortion because abortion is whilst um, the baby is, is in the womb so consequently there wasn't a law against what she had done um, oddly enough so what they decided to do is create another felony that would cover um, as it were killing babies in partu uh, that is while they're given, giving birth but also in later term pregnancy as well and that's called child destruction both of those laws are still in the books so mm-hmm. strictly speaking abortion is still illegal in Great Britain um, because after 28 weeks, um, it becomes child destruction. Prior to 28 weeks, it became it was not. It was abortion. But after 28 weeks, kind of, um, it was taken that a baby could be born alive. And because the baby could be born alive, that was taken at the time when um, a child destruction was taking place as opposed to abortion. But in 1967, um, the abortion lobby had, got, had actually succeeded in getting a bill through Parliament, which essentially was, was pegged as a very moderate law. It essentially said that a doctor would not be prosecutable under the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act of the felony of abortion. He would not be prosecuted if he and another doctor decided in good faith that the pregnancy would lead to um, a danger to a mother's life or a grave um, threat to her physical or mental health or just a threat to her physical and mental health or those of her children and her wider family, I think, as well. Um, Or if the baby would be born with a disability. Um, with a serious disability, actually. It says, it's, it, the language used suggests a serious handicap, but practically speaking, it's, it's been used to uh, justify abortion for anything like a, a, a cleft lip or a um, cleft palate, lip, lip palate, or else uh, a club foot, something like that. So that changed the law. 
And the problem with the law as it was then passed was that it became essentially de facto a justification for law and abortion on demand because the law says that a, a two doctors have to agree in good faith that this is necessary for a threat to the mother's health, uh, me mental health. And ultimately what that means is that doctors have just said, you know, we've found evidence of people pre-signing these forms, uh, saying that, yes, a woman is, is certainly a threat to her mental health, she should definitely go for, for an abortion, um, despite the fact there's no medical evidence whatsoever that abortion has any positive mental health sequelae to them at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it, doesn't necessarily, it doesn't help a woman at all, uh, so the law is a joke, really. But it's also a joke because it's simply not enforced. Um, it's supposed to be a very moderate law, one that only allows a small number of uh, women to have abortions in extreme circumstances. Practically speaking, it's used to justify abortion on demand. So even though, this is the ludicrous nature of the, the law as we have it, even though abortion is illegal, strictly speaking, we have a exception clause in the, we have exception clauses within the Abortion Act that allow for abortion on demand. It, it's a total nonsense. But it's become so much part of the culture now that everyone's happy with the consensus, um, at least insofar as abortion on demand still exists. Um, so since then, um, the, the, the situation only slightly changed in 1991 when we had what was known as the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act. And what that did is it, um, it meant that there was a reduction in the uh, number of weeks. Um, they are, because of the 28-week the uh, limit in the 1929 Preserva Infant Life Preservation Act, it meant that there was a kind of upper limit to abortion. You, could, you couldn't go beyond 28 weeks under any circumstances because it's still... Uh, didn't allow for any exceptions for child's destruction. Sorry if that seems a little bit complicated, but that's just the way the, the law worked. In 1991, they decoupled the Act um, from the the, uh, the exceptions of the Infant Life Preservation Act from the 1967 Act, so that now abortion could happen under any circumstances, um, except uh, under any circumstances up until birth, um, except that there was a 24-week limit for um, abortions that happen for the mental and physical health of the mother. So abortion can be up until birth for disability, up until birth for um, the physical, the grave physical health of the mother, certainly her life, um, but it's a, there's an upper limit cap of 24 weeks for threats to the mother's uh, mental and physical health. So most abortions, because they happen under the clause that deals with mental health uh, and physical health, that, that means that most abortions have a limit of 24 weeks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the situation for us, really, which is we've got one of the most liberal laws, I think the, possibly the most liberal law in Europe, and um, that's the situation for us. And the, the same act then gave the right also for, well, set up what's known as the, the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, and what that's led to is the freedom to just experiment on human embryos. Uh, and we have, again, one of the most liberal laws in the world on that, mm. and uh, we have, it's increasingly more liberal as well. Now, when you were starting to tell us about that, you mentioned that a certain act got royal assent. Uh, could you explain what you mean by that? A royal assent is a, it's, it's um, in our country because we're a constitutional monarchy. We have to have bills go through the House of Commons, which is like your House of Representatives. Okay. Then they go through what's called the House of Lords, which is like um, our Senate. Um, except that the members of the House of Lords are not elected, they are appointed by the government and they're all, made, and they're all uh, members uh, who are uh, lords they're literally called lords and ladies um, they are baronesses etc um, but they are either midlife peers or they are, um, some people are still hereditary peers, that is to say that they are still dukes and, and earls and whatnot who have uh, retained their position within the House of Lords, but most are life peers most of the people are appointed by the government for a term 
up until they die. They can be members of the House of Lords. But royal assent is when, if a bill has passed through the House of Commons and the House of Lords, then the Queen signs it. The Queen gives her assent. And she, strictly speaking, she doesn't really uh, choose to say yes to some bills and no to others. It's a, just a convention that she'll just allow it to go through. She just signs the bill and there it is. So royal assent means that the bill has passed. It's gone through. It's finalised. The Queen has signed it. It's now law. That's what that means. So that happened on the 27th of October 1967 uh, for the Abortion Act. Okay. Uh, some of us, when I'm sure when we first hear about the uh, this law being passed, about the danger to the life of a mother and such, some of us be saying, well, you know, we're anti-abortion, but many of us do make exceptions that if the child's going to die and the mother's life is in danger, then that, that sadly is <coughs> a necessary evil, as it were, that has to take place. Uh-huh. But... This kind of goes beyond that because I think even I think most uh, pro-life organizations would really have no problem with having to save a mother's life if they know the baby's going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on what we're talking about. This is this is where it becomes bioethically rather complicated. Okay. Um, because the right to life applies to everyone uh, at all different stages. It's not something that we pick and choose to uh, affirm or not. We say, no, everyone has the right to life. So what constitutes uh, a right and what constitutes a violation of that right? Well, a right is what's known as a negative right when it comes to uh, basic, basic fundamental human rights like the right to life, the right not to be tortured. Mm-hmm. These are what's known as negative rights. Would negative that be right- like, for instance, in our constitution where we say that we have a right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That's, that's absolutely right, yeah. Okay. Um, these are what's known as natural rights. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're rights that accrue to us because of our human nature, because we're human beings. Right. Um, and they are negative rights, because a negative right is uh, essentially the right not to be interfered with in some way. It's the right to not have coercion put upon one. Mm-hmm. So the right to life really means the right to not be killed, the right mm-hmm. to not be murdered by someone else. Right. And indeed, the right to have the protection of the state. Um, so the state has a responsibility, a duty, to stop other people from killing you. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's what the right to life means, then it means that under no circumstances can we kill another human being, can we directly attack and kill another human being, even if it leads to some greater good. Um, now this doesn't mean that we don't necessarily believe in war or the death penalty even. I mean, the death penalty is a very controversial issue. I'm not in favour of the death penalty myself. Um, but there are certain circumstances under which it could be justified if, it, if it were n- there were no other way of protecting the public um, from a threat to um, their lives, their existence. If you had to kill a, uh, this, this criminal in order to protect the public, there was no other way of doing it, then it would be justifiable. Yeah, um, I think what you're course, talking about is kind of like a situation where are things being equal we have a right to life, but if I'm in a theater and there's a criminal out there and he's got a gun, he's shooting at people, I'm right. justified in, in pouring out my gun and letting him have it. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm cer- I certainly think that if you have the right to life and the state has the right to protect you, then it must also use lethal force in order to protect you um, against someone else's aggression. So what I'm trying to bring out is that there is an aggression as it were, exception here. If someone is aggressive towards you lethally, then the state, because it's the legitimate authority, does have the right to say, right, well, we're going to stop that harm from happening. Um, And that could be the one case, in my opinion, it's the one case under which the death penalty could be justified. But the war war and terrorism are much easier examples, because Mm -hmm. in war, you've got an aggressor, he's attacking someone else, or he's attacking you or your nation, then the state has the right to use lethal violence to stop lethal violence against others. That's the 
uh, thing I'm trying to bring out there. And I'm so pretty sure you'd step, use the, for instance, for just war policies. That been, that's right, okay. yeah. Go on. So there are, apart from that exception, so you've got an aggressor who is trying to attack you and you use lethal force to stop the aggressor. That's obviously not the case when it comes to an unborn child. An unborn child could not meaningfully be described as, as an aggressor. They're right. not trying to attack anyone. Um, so consequently, even if the mother's life is in danger, do we justify abortion? Well, I would say no. And the reason I would say no is because in that circumstance, you are essentially, if you're engaging in abortion, you're engaging in what's known as feticide, that is, you are directly killing the unborn child in order to get the, the positive benefit of the mother's life being saved. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not quite sure if that's ever really the case. I'm not quite sure if there's ever any right. medical circumstance in which that really is you know, necessary mm-hmm. uh, to kill the unborn child directly as opposed to simply mm-hmm. um, stop pregnancy at some point, remove the child. Um, and, but of course, prior to um, 24 weeks, which is when viability happens, um, if you do remove the child directly, then that is essentially the same thing. You are attacking the child. So let's, pre- let's say that that circumstance is a realistic circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it very must, may very well be under certain circumstances. I don't think it's justifiable because it violates the right to life. It, in other words, mm. you're directly attacking that child, even though they're not an aggressor, in order to gain some positive benefit, even if it's the gravest possible benefit there is, which is to save the mother's life. Mm. Um, I don't think that that is consistent if you believe in the right to life completely, consistently. You cannot kill one human being in order to save the life of another mm-hmm. in a non-aggression um, circumstance. Mm. So I understand why that's a difficult situation. It's a terrible circumstance, yeah. a terrible situation. You can only imagine if your mother or your wife or your sister uh, was involved that it would be a, 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 just a horrific circumstance to oh, be yeah. in. But the yeah. point is that if law has to be based on consistent principles and ethics have to be based on consistent principles, mm-hmm. and the same principle in both is the case that you have this basic what I call a dignitarian humanism, a basic philosophy of human dignity. And if you believe in the, the equality of all human beings, because they're human beings, and you believe in, therefore, their equality of rights, and especially their most fundamental, negative, natural human rights, then you don't get to pick and choose when you believe in those things uh, should be, that, that principle should be applied. You have to be consistent mm-hmm. completely. Uh, and unless, and if, unless you're not, you don't really have a consistent case. Yeah, that certainly gives a lot to think about over here. Mm. Um, let's uh, get to where we, how we got to 1967 in your country. Now, historically, mm. England has been a Christian country, hasn't it? That's right. So, I mean, around we talk about 1861 about that first act being there. I'm thinking, okay, that was when we had our civil war going on, we had our freedom of the slaves over here, and that was after Wilberforce had already gone through England and had what about the liberation of slaves over there? So Christianity has had historically a major impact on the UK, but it looks like we we've reached a point the you reached a point in the UK where Christianity just didn't have that impact, and abortion was allowed to become normalized in the country. And how well, how do you get to that point? It's you know it's it's very difficult discussion because ultimately. Yeah. Um, we have had this discussion over in this country as to what really do we mean when we say that Britain ha- is and was a Christian country. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in the, in the 19- actually in the Victorian age, the number of people who actually attended church was, was not particularly high, oddly enough. I think that when I, I look at looked at the statistics, it was something like in the 50s, you know, in 50%, something like that. It was, it was not very high. Um, so were we really a Christian nation in the Victorian age? 
it's very questionable, particularly given a lot of the other stuff we were doing. Now, you know, when we're talking about the Victorian age, what time period are we talking about exactly? A Vic- sorry, so the Victorian age would have been from, I think it's 18, the 1830s until the 1900s. Okay. In other words, the Victorian age is when Queen Victoria was on the throne, and she was on the ah. throne for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why it's called the Victorian age. And so... Yeah. Um, it would have included, as you say, uh, the period of the American Civil War, uh, yeah. and so therefore 1861. So when the uh, Offences Against the Person Act were was passed, it was during a period where yes, we had a Christian, we had a country that was Christian insofar as it was very much informed by mm-hmm. uh, Christianity. Um, the elite were certainly very were certainly um, at least. Christian in terms of their background culture and so Christianity was the background culture of the country to the extent that people were practicing Christianity that's very questionable um, there were some who were and there were a lot of people who weren't as just as there are today the difference that there has happened I think in the last uh, century and a bit has been that the elite of our society have gone from being at least background Christians to being not at all background not even background Christians mm-hmm. and even though in our uh, general culture and in our laws, Christianity is still there. In this country, we still have uh, the Anglican Communion in England as our state church, quote unquote. Mm. Um, even though that's the case, um, the culture itself has become so secularized as to become unchristian, as to become practically pagan, and, mm. cer- and, ter- and certainly secular. So a lot of our laws still retain a Christian character. Uh, we still care about the disabled. Uh, well, we care about the disabled, actually, I would say, more than we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's been a lot of, of good changes that have come about, I would say, due to a culture that has that background Christian ethic. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's good about this country from a, a right-to-life perspective is that we have the, the best palliative care um, in the world, literally. We, we have the best palliative care in the world. Palliative care being um, care to people who are suffering at the end of their life, terminal illness. Mm-hmm. And palliative care takes away uh, pain. That's, that's called palliation. It takes away pain. Um, and we have the most well-developed, best palliative care system on the planet due to a woman called Dame Cicely Saunders, um, so who started that off, uh, who was a great, um, great expression, I would say, of our Christian culture. And that's why assisted suicide and euthanasia um, should not be legalized in this country because we simply don't need euthanasia and assisted suicide. We have palliative care and we would argue that the rest of the world could follow the same system, that we could have um, such a well-developed system of palliative care that um, practically speaking, apart from a very small minority of cases, no one would ever feel the need uh, to commit suicide uh, because of pain um, mm-hmm. or commit or have euthanasia committed upon them. Um, so there are, there's a very large extent to which Britain is still a Christian country in terms of its background culture and because of its ethics, which have informed its political discussion, which have um, informed its um, existence of having a universal health system. Uh, in all sorts of other ways, we have, a, as, as it were, a background Christian culture, a sort of a, a surviving Christian ethic as in terms of the way that we treat people. Mm. But um, that has suffered from the fact that we live in a very secular age and consequently, I think, Abortion, the Abortion Act, was probably passed, I think, under a, an understanding that, well, we're showing a, a kind of compassion for really extreme cases, you know, when a mother's life is in danger, when she has yeah. an extreme threat to her physical health. Those are extreme cases. This wasn't meant to be a bill that legalised abortion on demand. And in fact, the frame of the bill Lord Steele has, has said, he doesn't think that should have been the case at all. But regardless, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have been under a false idea of human compassion, and even even though that this so-called human compassion actually led to the violation 
of the most fundamental rights of the most vulnerable people in our society. Mm-hmm. So, so that I think is the connection I would say between having a Christian culture, as it were, and uh, and the laws and the and the approach to things as we have them. And but because we've had that worsening culture has happened, we now even have the spectre of assisted suicide. Um, because going through Parliament right now is a bill by Lord Falkner Thurston, who was a former Lord Chancellor. That is, he was sort of um, as it were the, the head of the legal system by virtue of his position in the Lords. And uh, his bill, um, the so-called assisted dying bill, would like to introduce assisted suicide into Great Britain. There's also another bill in Scotland, which has a slightly different legal system and, and political system, um, called, which was um, forwarded by a woman called Margot MacDonald, who has since died, which would also try to legalise assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. So because I think of um, the change in culture, um, the idea of assisted suicide has become much more uh, something which we're willing to um, explore because people have this absolute idea of human autonomy, whereby they should they feel that they should have the uh, the right to just end their life when when they want to, uh, with the assistance of others. Because of course, they already have the right to commit suicide. That's legal in in the United Kingdom since the 1961 Suicide Act. Um, but assistance of suicide, which is not the right to die, but the right to be killed, uh, that isn't allowed. And somehow people feel that well, you know, they sh- a lot of people feel that they should have that right. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it actually violates, as we see in your country, um, the the most vul- again the most vulnerable people, whether they be very old or terminally ill. Um, Oregon is a very good example. Oregon State um, yeah. has legalised assisted suicide, mm. and in 1998, when the Death with Dignity Act in Oregon came about, thir- one of the reasons people gave, according to the report that the uh, Oregon Public Health State Division um, helpfully brings out every year, um, according to that report. Um, one of the reasons people gave for wanting to, to commit assisted suicide was that they felt that they were a burden on their families, and that was 13% of people in 1998. In 2012, that had become 61% of people mm. who were presenting for assisted suicide, and that tells you the corruption that happens to the culture when you legalise things like assisted suicide and euthanasia. Mm. Um, but that's even rearing its ugly head now in the United Kingdom. Um, mm. And I, I, actually, I hope, I believe that this bill will be defeated, ultimately, whether it happens in the Lords, where it's currently being um, con- uh, considered, or in the House of Commons, um, but the fact that this c- has come up so often is not a very good sign um, in terms of our culture's view of the right to life and human dignity. Now, you were talking about how England had this Christian heritage at the start, and now it's become a much more secularized and pagan atmosphere. We would say the same thing about America over here, and for any interest to just go to July of last year, I think it's July 5th, where I had Bill Fortenberry come on talking about the foundations of our country, mm-hmm. and the founding fathers, and how they were by and large Christians. Mm-hmm. And so we've had a Christian foundation over here. Many of us would still see America as a Christian country, and yet we've had our own term where we're becoming much more secularized in everything even what you were talking about with what's going on in Oregon. How do we look across the pond? Because I know over in the UK you are pay very much attention to what happens over here. Oh yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do we approach overse- how do you approach overseas? Well, it's uh, a very good question. It depends on which overseas you're talking about. If you're talking about Great Britain, um, I think what you can see is exactly what you're seeing in your country because we, have, we, we pretty much have a shared culture. Certainly all the Anglophone countries uh, Australia, Great Britain, Canada, and the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have a, a shared culture because of our shared language. 
um, to a greater or lesser extent. Obviously, we have great differences as well. Um, but we've seen the same problem happen in all those different countries, um, mm. the same secularization. And to a great extent, um, due to the same reasons. Um, in the Catholic Church, the reasons um, not only happen because of cultural change, and cultural change always affects the church because the church lives in society, um, and the, the damage that the First and Second World Wars did to Christian civilization had an effect. That led to the 1960s and the ideological infiltration of many of the um, parts of society that create culture by people um, of a new leftist, what's known as a new leftist persuasion, mm. um, who had a particular kind of philosophy that rejected um, any idea of a, a uh, of the dominance of Christianity or any idea of the ethic um, that Christianity passes on, and also because of the changes that happen within the Christian culture itself. Um, you'll be able to speak better to your context as mm. to what happened within an evangelical Protestant Christian context in America. Right. But in the United Kingdom, um, certainly in the Catholic Church, in the Anglican uh, Communion, in all the different sort of uh, areas that happened there, the same, what we would call modernism, uh, affected the church and infected the church. Um, a kind of theology which desacralized the liturgy, which undermined the ethical views of the, ch of, of the church, which want, wanted to relativize them, wanted to make them more in line with society and the secular state, um, that wanted to move away from historic orthodox practicing Christianity. And I would say that affected the, the church in a very profound way and led to a real a failure of Christian education so that Christians when they, whether they be in Catholic schools in this country we have Catholic schools that are also state schools I know in America that's illegal but in this country we don't have a problem with that at all mm. um, the kind of teaching you would have got prior to the 1960s would have been much more um, serious in terms of passing on what Christianity actually is than happened afterwards and mm. the church has shot itself in the foot um, in a number of different ways and consequently I think that affected the, ch the culture as well because people who go out and, be, and say well I'm a Catholic and become whether it be newsreaders in the media whether it be academics uh, whether it be politicians you find that when you meet them they have very little idea of what Christianity really is and, and what the reasons for it are mm -hmm. and that's why I think apologetic ministries like yours and others um, are quite important because that, mm -hmm. leads, that will hopefully lead to a renaissance uh, as you would say as a renaissance as we would say of um, of an intellectual culture within Christianity that leads to better um, equipped Christians to go out and actually be um, to argue the case for the church for the gospel and also for the right to life for the rights of people in other different situations and for human dignity that's that's the kind of thing that we need you need to start from the, the roots up um, mm. So it seems to me that what you look at in our cult culture and in our country is exactly what hap has happened in yours. Mm -hmm. Well, from my perspective over here, we were talking about this last night. My wife and I went to, we have a, con a couple's connection group at our church where couples get together and have a little Bible study. And we actually never really got to the Bible study part because we started talking about Christianity and our culture. So in essence, we did get to have some sort of Bible study. But one statement I made was that there are two great dangers that are <clears throat> that are affecting the church today and one of them is caused in part by the other one the the danger that's the symptom is anti-intellectualism that's yes. overtaking our church so much and I said when I say anti-intellectualism I don't mean every one of you has to be a genius every one of you has to master a systematic theology and know 
every project argument. What I mean is that you need to have some intellectual content to your faith and realize that what you're talking about are events that you believe really did historically happen. Mm-hmm. And so in, you really can't do your Christian service if you don't have any. If you're going to go and say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to worship God and the music of your church. Well, that's great. But if you don't have any intellectual content to what you mean by God, then what difference are you doing? You can't worship God, really, if you don't know anything about who he is. I'm just saying, well, he's what? God and I worship him. I, I uh, use the analogy of it, that a Christianity is compared to a marriage and say, if you're getting married, you need to know who you're going to be jumping into bed with. Just ask <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> Yes, very, very, very true. Uh, well, I totally agree with you. Um, I think that there has been, and I don't want to uh, to, to bash um, uh, people of the evangelical Protestant tradition or the Pentecostal tradition um, on this level, but I do think that we see, in, in the United Kingdom, we have a bit of a prejudice about um, American Christians by virtue of the fact that it's sort of a liberal prejudice which is passed on to us in England of uh, evangelical Protestants being very anti-intellectual, you know, mm. not particularly bright, uh, not particularly well-informed, uh, rather prejudiced and homophobic and blah de blah right. Yeah, you, you, we get that um, in the United Kingdom, and, and I think there is a certain reality to it. You know, uh, stereotypes don't just occur out of thin air; they come, they they refer right. to some basic mm-hmm. uh, reality or truth. And certainly, I see that as a problem within the American. Uh, church, but it's also a problem in the British uh, context as well. Um, and the problem, I mean, certainly in the Catholic Church, we have an incredible uh, intellectual tradition in the Catholic Church, as indeed do many parts of evangelical Protestantism, as I realise. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, unfortunately, it's not been taught, it's not been passed on. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people have been patronised. There's a very common patronisation by uh, a lot of people um, in, in church settings of ordinary Christians, oh, they don't need to know theology, they don't need to know that, you know, they're happy and they're fine with their simple faith. Well, actually, I think simple faith is grossly irresponsible now. Right. Uh, we've got to the point in our culture where unless you know these things, mm-hmm. and as you say, you don't need to be a great theologian or a, or a genius, right. but you do need to be informed, mm-hmm. and you need to know why a, what certain worldviews are um, are wrong, yeah. are, are a mistake, um, simply don't lead to good consequences, and are wrong from first principles. Um, and that's why I think we need to, in my opinion, we need to rediscover the natural law tradition, yeah. which um, is very much part of historic Christianity uh, and various different uh, traditions, and show that that um, natural law tradition yeah. is, is basically true and can be seen to be true by anyone. You don't need to be a Christian in order to believe in natural law. Now, I think the danger is that when you become a believer in natural law, you'll probably become a Christian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but not everyone may want that. But ultimately, that's the basis, I think, that we can have a, a common understanding of ethics across um, different worldviews, well, certainly across different um, religious traditions or irreligious traditions. If you're a secular person and you believe in natural law, um, then I think you're appealing to the same basic rationality that I am as a Catholic Christian, that you are as an evangelical Protestant Christian. Um, and so consequently, I think that's the, the basis that we need to, to bring to the average Christian so that they can go out and make that appeal to the people in their workplaces, wherever mm-hmm. they go, and change the culture that way. Bring it back to an understanding of natural law, which, after all, is the only real basis that we have for natural rights, and therefore for human rights, and therefore for, for what we have as what we all have as the heritage of Western civilization. People feel, feel like they can have this heritage, this belief in human dignity and human rights, without the background metaphysics and philosophy oh, yeah. that gave birth to those concepts. Well, you can't. It's mm. simply not possible. 
Um, so I, so yeah, we need to be much better at educating the average Christian in order to make them able to go out, witness to this truth, and bring people to to the truth, which is Christianity. Yeah, you can know that uh, these natural law principles are true, but you have to have the ontological or metaphysical basis for it, as it were. Yeah. And you I mean you talk about our history? I mean, I, I agree entirely because many of the Catholic theologians that you look to as your ancestors, your spiritual ancestors of war, I'd look to the exact same ones. You talk about St. Augustine, I'm right there. I talk about Thomas Aquinas, I consider myself a Thomist. I mean, this is all of our uh, heritage. And that's I, absolutely I, lovely to hear. Uh, that's yeah. great to hear. And, and when you talk about having a simple faith, I, I was just sitting there thinking, I, I can't imagine going to someone and saying, yeah, I've got a simple marriage. I, I know enough about my wife. I don't really need to know anymore. And how is it that we can go and say, yeah, I worship God, I, I worship Christ, but I, I know enough about them. I don't need to know any more. Like, if you worship them, you're going you to want to know as much about them as you can. Mm-hmm. But then when I said that there were two causes, anti-intellectualism is a symptom. I think individualism in our country is the root cause of a problem because everyone becomes a god of their own selves and they say, well, I want it, it makes me happy, therefore, it is good. And when this can affect our Christianity, I mean, from a Protestant tradition, for instance, we'd say, well, we don't recognize the Pope as the authority, okay? But the danger is a lot of Protestants become their own little popes, where they say, it's just me and the Bible, and that's all I need. And I say, well, yeah, you're going to find everything you need for salvation, that way, but there is a rich, rich heritage in your past. We have several scholars who study the Bible, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, all traditions coming together. And there are several scholars today who are studying it. And if you do not go and check what these other people are saying, you're going to be missing so many blind spots. But our individualism just has us all focused on ourselves and what mm. we want or what we can do without considering the good of a community as a whole. That's very true. Um, it's a real problem. It, it, it leads mm. to a kind of um, a sort of laziness, I certainly think, mm-hmm. that some people feel like they can just have their own faith. Right. It doesn't really affect anyone else, and mm. uh, they can just make it up as they go along almost. Mm. Or they can decide for themselves what um, the truth is. Mm. And, of course, you can't do that. Now, I mean, there's going to be a difference in between the Catholic and Protestant approaches to this. I mean, to a certain extent, I would say that uh, the egoism, the individualism that we see uh, may have its roots in the epistemological approach that sola scriptura, that is the doctrine of scripture alone, has engendered. But there are other people who would argue, um, certainly a a chap that you and I have both um, crossed swords with, uh, James R. White would argue, as he did in the debate that I had with him on this subject, Mm -hmm. um, that um, sola scriptura doesn't mean you and your Bible under a tree. It means uh, you and the scriptures um, and you executing them responsibly and you listening to the tradition of people like Augustine and others um, critically, but uh, looking at those uh, different intellectual resources of the past mm-hmm. and uh, coming to a mature judgment like that. Um, now, I don't agree with him <laughs> at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there are severe problems, but that's a theological debate we can have another time. Right. Um, ultimately, I think that um, the, regardless of what tradition you hold to, that if you have an informed faith that is informed about history, that is informed about philosophy, that is mm. informed about theology, and I'm not one of these people who thinks that theology is somehow the, the lesser handmaiden of philosophy. I think the two need to go together hand right. in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you need philosophy in order to properly understand texts and therefore the scriptures. And I think you need 
theology uh, in order to know what the content of your belief is. You can't make up right. your belief as you go along. You can't decide what is philosophically, uh, what you prefer most philosophically, and then read it into the scriptures. That's that's dishonest. That's not mm. a good way about things. You read the scriptures as honest as you can, using the best kind of exegesis you can. Right. Um, learning Greek, learning Hebrew as much as... And again, again, not everyone may be able to do this, uh-huh. but those who can should, and those who can't should listen to those who can, mm-hmm. and at least try to understand as best that they can. And I think that there's no one who is so... Well, most people are not so dumb that they can't get a really, really good amount of apologetic material under their belt and we're able to understand it and apply it and bring mm-hmm. it out um, and you know I realise that I don't want to sneer at people who are like little old ladies you see in churches who have lived their lives with a, with a simple faith by virtue of the fact they were never taught properly I don't want to sneer at those ladies because they have had a, a, you know, often lives of great piety and great faith Oh yes. but if you're a young Christian then you don't have the excuse mm-hmm. you, you're a young guy or a young girl Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, you know the, the culture as it is and if you have been taught properly then you have a responsibility to go out and to teach others how to teach properly and to preach properly mm-hmm. and to meet the challenges of the age and if you're not doing that then you're not really evangelizing because right. evangelization ought to be building the kingdom of, of God on earth and it ought to be and therefore it ought to be taking minds captive as it says in um, in uh, 1 Corinthians I think it is 1 Corinthians 15 I think uh, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 10 2 Corinthians thank you sorry that's right <laughs> um, thank you uh, yes as take minds captive for Christ that's exactly what needs to happen mm-hmm. and yet it's not happening um, because again there has been this total abdication of the responsibility to be uh, an intellectually responsible person in one's life and and today as I say when you've got the internet when you have got you know, an incredible resource when you've got a wealth of resources out there um, I don't think anyone has any excuse anymore. and people need to be held accountable to that and say learn your faith learn the reasons for why you believe that um, and be able to expand it to others oh yes I agree entirely I was thinking about our own situation over here in our household, because I, when, I, when I talk about our marriage, I like to say, I'm the head, Allie's the heart. Because I'm the one who's more like to be the cold-blooded intellectual, just stuck in my books over here, and then she's the one who's saying, how can we best pray for these people? How can we best show the love of Christ to these people? And I, I notice more and more, we rub off on each other, because I do become more compassionate the more I'm around her, and then I'll see, see her, and she'll be asking me, what do you think about such and such an issue? Why do you think this is? Don't you think these people are, are thinking some wrongly here? That that argument just isn't logical. And, and I see him thinking, yes, yes. It, 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 it's so wonderful. And one aspect yeah. I can talk about is that in our own church, for instance, we have this great tradition that we have. Um, my church happens to be a Lutheran church. But oh, we, we We meet in a movie theater of all places. Mm-hmm. And so when we meet, we uh, we often at my church, my wife and I often attend both services because she helps out with the band, so we get there early, which means we sadly have to wake up at five in the morning on Sunday. So yes, some suffering for Christ is voluntary, <laughs> and uh, so we go there and we're hearing both services, and there is this really fascinating feature, and this is one that made me think: yes, this is the kind of church I want to attend because. Too many of them are indeed intellectually shallow, and that's that. Do you, before the service starts, this 
things that come up on the screen, talking about all these announcements, events going on, and one thing you'll say is, if you have a question at any time during the service about anything, text in your question to such and such number, and we will come out at the end, and we will answer your question. That's a great idea. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, that is so simple, and that it, it's so strong. Now, there are some times that the pastor comes and say, this is a really difficult question. I can't answer it right here. What I'm going to do is go home and make a webisode, and I'll answer that question here, because some of them you don't, want to give a whole 10-minute ep- ep- answer right, right there at the church. You want to go more in-depth, and I really appreciate that. I mean, when we were choosing the church, I wanted some of contemporary worship. I wanted something with good intellectual content, and I looked and I saw this preacher answering real questions. I, I didn't agree with all the answers. I thought, this is a place, at least, where the intellectual content is taken seriously. And I, I know it is also because, frankly, they've come to me and said, Hey, would you like to do some of the writing of the material here? Definitely. And oftentimes we'll read the Apostles' Creed before the service starts. And so when that act of service I did recently is I've written an ebook where I've gone through the Apostles' Creed and explained the, the, uh, what it says the best way I think I can and given uh, the historical defense of many of the doctrines that are in it and said, okay, uh, here's my thing for the church. Anyone who's a member of a church, I want you to have it for free if you want it. Just ask me, I'll give it to you. Because I want the church to be informed. Because when we look at what's happened in our country, and I'm sure you could say the same about what happened in your country, the reason I think it happened over here is we dropped the ball. The church did not continue to be the church. And we let the world be the world. And I say, people, if you want to see what went wrong in America, if you're a Christian, you want to know what's wrong with our country, Go look in the mirror, because I expect the world to act like the world. The problem is when the church doesn't act like the church. Indeed so, and, and you know, the, the, as you say, the world will act like the world. And mm. it doesn't really matter whether or not um, we are, in the short term, successful mm. uh, in changing minds. Because I mean, ultimately the world has become, the surrounding culture has become, is so changed now. Mm. Um, there has been such a, um, a mistaken idea of what constitutes human nature. Um, and we see this in the uh, again uh, the arguments to do with human sexuality that we now have um, right. that, that we don't seem to believe anymore that there is an objective reality to human nature mm. that rather it's something that we can sort of be nominalistic about that really uh, when we talk about masculinity and femininity when we believe about when we believe about human sexuality oh it's all it's, it's all sort of uh, whatever we want it to be um, that's that's not necessarily something everyone would say. I think the vast majority of people would say, well, no, I don't believe that at all. But you see it very much in the background um, philosophy of a lot of people who are writing, who are members of the what we would call the commentariat, um, the people who are writing uh, articles in the Washington Post, maybe, or in the Guardian in this country, or, or other such things. They have that background theology. Uh, they have that background philosophy um, that believes that man can make himself into what if he wants him to be. Um, certainly when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to other things. Okay. And if you believe that, that, that contradicts the basic premise of Christian philosophy um, and the doctrine that God is, is creator. Mm-hmm. It's very much connected. People don't realize that it's connected, but it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we must have uh, a response to. We have to be able to defend the idea that nature is something which has an objective reality. And because it has an objective reality, um, we can say that from our nature we can derive these rights, which allows us to have the the belief that we have about the human right to life. But if you don't believe that, then that leads you into all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. But because people don't realise that this this sort of thing is happening, 
they're not prepared for you know arguments when it comes to as, as we said earlier on the redefinition of marriage because they're talking to people who have fundamental presuppositions to what they do mm-hmm. and if you don't realize that that's the case then you're not really arguing the points that are the most relevant you're arguing points that are you know only relevant when you've had that basic introduction that basic discussion mm-hmm. um but that's it's great that we you have um access to um a church in which um, that kind of thing can be answered. It, uh, is it a Missouri Synod or a Wisconsin Synod? I'm assuming it's one or t'other. I, I think it's Missouri. Missouri, right, mm-hmm. yes. I would have thought so. Because, I mean, talk, I, I have um, a, sort of a, a nerdy, sort of geeky knowledge of <laughs> different forms of uh, Christianity and American Christianity in particular because it's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod have a very, um, what we call, conservative approach to things. But that often leads to a very sound and very... Um, some sometimes innovative uh, approaches to apologetics and to mm. informing people. And I see it also in another another chapter of my great rem- admirer of um, in America called uh, Doug Wilson, mm-hmm. who you know from the movie um, Collision, where he debated with Christopher Hitchens. And he's a uh, Presbyterian, and mm. he has a but he has an incredible, very very intellectually. A well worked out approach to things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that within his church. It's in Moscow in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, yeah, it's something I very much admire. And I admire a lot of different forms of Christianity that really decide to retain and, and renew their heritage, the intellectual heritage of their tradition, and bring it out there and enable people to be intellectually. Um, fulfilled Christians. Because we're called, uh, you know, we're called to yeah. worship God with all of our, all of our persons. You know, our yep. body, our mind, and our spirit. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who think that the spirit is enough, even though that you know the spirit can't really be properly worshiping God if it isn't joined to the mind and it isn't joined to the body. You need to be, with all of your being, worshiping God. And that means being mm-hmm. responsible when it comes to knowing doctrine and when it comes to uh, preaching the gospel properly in an apologetic context, mm-hmm. uh, as much as you can to the degree that you can in, um, and in the context that you can. So, so yeah, so I very much admire that, and I very much admire the different other um, contexts in which that happens. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am your host, Nick Peters. My guest is Peter D. Williams from Across the Pond, talking about the Right to Life movement in the UK. But if you're listening next week, my friend Dee Dee Warren, who uh, formerly ran Theology Web as a co-owner in the Preterist site, She's going to be coming on, and no, we're not talking about eschatology this time, although hopefully that will be in the future. We're going to be talking about her story and her stance on abortion, which is one of the most moving and interesting ones that I've ever heard, and that is really all I'm going to say at this point. But I encourage you all to be back here next week when I interview Dee Dee Warren. It's an interview I've been looking forward to for a while. We tried to year last year and something went wrong but hopefully this year we'll have her on now when we get to back to the uh, state of matters in the UK mm. now one aspect that can affect things differently perhaps to some people is that over in the UK you all have health care differently from what I gather that it's more nationalized even though some Americans are pushing for that over here and I'm not going to go into that, but does that have any effect on abortion over there? Um, yes and no. Okay. It's interesting, um, <laughs> because the vast majority of abortions actually take place under what's called BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, um, mm-hmm. which is really our version of Planned Parenthood. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so most abortions take place in a private context, not in what we'd call the NHS, the National Health Service. Um, the way that healthcare, just to briefly explain, works in the uh, United Kingdom is that we do have uh, certain kinds of private healthcare, but it's a very small minority. The vast majority of people use the nationalised health service that we have and um, because it's free and uh, you know it's just easier and more convenient for many people. Um, private healthcare also does exist and there are other groups that are essentially like BPAS um, outsourced to by the NHS and so mm-hmm. BPAS essentially uh, you know, I think the NHS mainly pays for uh, abortions and BPAS does them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that there's not really much difference from that in the United States practically speaking apart from in the United States you um, have because of different laws, I mean, it depends on which state you're in. I know that uh, in many states, United uh, States, um, you've managed to close a lot of uh, abortion uh, facilities, and consequently, it's very sometimes very difficult for women to get abortions because they can't get. You know, it's just ages away. They have to pay for it as well. Um, in this country, not the case at all. The NHS will pay for that, um, but it will be run by a private, uh, generally, um, uh, under a private um, auspice. Now. It does affect the right to life uh, and surrounding uh, elements within the right to life by virtue of a recent case that we had, which went uh, sadly very badly for us um, in the United Kingdom in December, um, which focused on a couple of midwives. They they were in Scotland, actually, and they are Catholics, and they said, we do not want to be involved, not only in abortion itself, which um, has been protected um, under the Abortion Act of 1967. There is a conscience clause, which means that no one who objects to abortion has to be involved directly within the procedure. But there was debate over whether or not that applied, not merely to people who are doctors or nurses engaged in the actual operation, but also um, midwives and others who are involved in any kind of what's known as material cooperation. And I'll just explain that material cooperation means that you're not merely involved in the acts directly, but you're giving support to the act that allows the acts to happen. So let's say that you're, uh, as an example, um, a, a, an administrator in a concentration camp in Germany in the 1940s. Uh, you are not necessarily killing people, you're not necessarily shooting people in the head, but by virtue of your work, you are directly supporting those who do. Uh, mm-hmm. Another example might be if you're giving, uh, if you're the supplier of Zyklon B um, to the Nazis, uh, then you are directly, even though you're not involved in the gassing of people, you are directly involved in the process that involves mm-hmm. the killing of people. And that's called material cooperation. In the case, the Scottish midwives, they were saying, well, if we're giving um, sort of oversight to this procedure then essentially we are directly we are materially cooperating in this evil and we refuse to do that and so they took it to court they took it all the way to the United Kingdom Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decided that the Abortion Act would only be interpreted to mean direct cooperation mm-hmm. and, it would ex- and it didn't cover material cooperation so they are now forced to be involved and want to keep their job they are uh, forced to be directly involved uh, sort of be materially involved within the surrounding support of abortion. Now, I hope that they will take that to the European courts because in the United Kingdom we are members of the European Union for uh, you know, whatever you believe about the United Kingdom, the, the uh, European Union. There's a lot of debate in this country about whether or not we should continue to be members uh, of the European Union, but regardless of what you think, uh, it does mean that there is a higher court than the Supreme Court, and that's the European Court. Um, and so consequently, uh, we can they might be able to go to the European courts and say, uh, actually, you know, can you reverse this decision? Whether or not that will happen or not, I don't know. But that means that because of the NHS and because of its rules, 
Um, the Scottish midwives are, for the moment at least, uh, and indeed anyone, anyone else who, to whom this kind of uh, ruling applies, forced to engage in something which fundamentally violates their conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so in that sense, I suppose you could argue um, that it, it has had an effect because of that. Mm-hmm. Well, when you would have the way different states have shut down some facilities and such, over here in America, my wife and I live in Tennessee, and I do know that in our past election, we did manage to get the yes on one bill passed, where governments were going to come in then and start making checks on abortion facilities and such, so hopefully you could get a lot of them shut down in that way. <clears throat> well, the, the the problem is that in this country, um, mm-hmm. I see I see that point. Um, mm-hmm. In the United States, you have the benefit of having uh, a, a state-based system. You have a federal system. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United Kingdom, we don't really have that. We have a unitary system whereby um, the UK Parliament is the Parliament of the entire UK. I mean, mm-hmm. okay, there are, there's a certain degree of decentralisation to Scotland um, and to United, Northern Ireland, and slightly less to Wales, who are the other uh, members of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. The, the other member nations, that is, of the United Kingdom, other than England. Um, but ultimately, we do, they don't have the degree of decentralization that the states do and in, the United, mm-hmm. in the United States. So consequently, we don't have the ability to uh, try to mollify the evil of abortion by those kind of tactics. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that the, the various debates that we do have, um, one such debate uh, that will hopefully lead us um, back in a positive direction, because I've been very negative about uh, you know, the United Kingdom thus far, and that's because we are in a very negative situation. Mm-hmm. We have been called, uh, one person in 2010 described us as the geopolitical epicenter of the culture of death. Uh, which is a very, <laughs> very good phrase and very sadly very accurate. We are a kind of ethical pariah, really, amongst the nations, given our mm-hmm. very, very uh, uh, permissive approach to the destruction of the human embryo and experimentation, for example, which you don't have a problem with as much as we do, nor does uh, mainland Europe. Mm-hmm. But regards of that, there are other debates where I'm hoping that the culture will begin to change. We've had for very many years a debate in the United Kingdom about um, the upper limit on abortion, and more and more cases have come about whereby babies have been born um, and they've survived before the point of viability, which is 24 weeks. In other words, the baby's been born at something like 23, 22 weeks, and the baby survived. Mm-hmm. And because of this, um, in fact, there's been a whole, I think there was a whole ward in uh, Brighton, which had a 100% rate of children being born alive before the point of, um, uh, it's, I think, something like 22 weeks. Um, so because of the improving medical um, system that we have because of the improved uh, medicine that we have we're finding that the point of viability is being pushed back and back and back very slowly but it certainly exists mm-hmm. and so consequently there's been a lot of discussion about decreasing the upper limit there's been hardly any discussion if any uh, about abolishing the upper limit or about raising it so all of the uh, momentum is on making the law less permissive on abortion rather than more permissive Mm-hmm. Not only that, but there are other ethical areas, such as abortion due to sex selection, which is something that is not necessarily um, explicitly okayed by the law, but is in, could be argued to be implicitly okayed. So BPAS have argued that the law does allow abortion on the grounds of sex selection. So in other words, um, a couple doesn't want a, a girl child or a boy child 
and therefore has an abortion on that basis. We have known that people, we've, we've found that people have been, you know, doctors have been willing to say, yes, we'll sign off on that. Mm-hmm. And we've also uh, found that that's a problem in certain um, ethnic minority communities. And we've also found that um, DPAS itself has argued that, that should, that's, a, that's legal because it could be um, an element of a threat to the mother's mental health, which I find you know, laughable, and a lot of other people find it very laughable, but nonetheless, that's been argued. And most people, vast majority of people, if you ask polls, are utterly opposed to abortion on the grounds of sex selection. Uh-huh. So the idea that uh, abortion is a right is not believed by the majority of Britons. The idea that abortion should be completely allowed in all circumstances is not accepted by the majority of Britons. They admit that there is a higher moral principle, a set of moral principles, that that governs or overarches the way that we uh, approach abortion. And that's a great thing for the right to life movement because it means that we can push the logic of that. We can say, look, if you believe that there is a set of overarching principles, what are those overarching principles? And let's follow that logic to its to its conclusion. Mm-hmm. And I think on, when, it, when it comes to sex selection, there was a 10-minute rule bill introduced last year, um, which um, has tried to essentially say, no, we're going to ban sex selection explicitly within the law. We're going to introduce um, uh, a ruling, that's a, a legislation that says that sex selection is not legal. Um, and that 10-minute rule bill is a, great, a very positive sign because it was passed, uh, it was at least okayed its first hurdle um, earlier on this um, last year by 181 votes to one. Uh, in the pond. That was a very, very positive uh, thing to see. So mm-hmm. that's one area where I think that the rights life movement is on the, part, the, the side of public opinion and where we could start to see the turning of the corner. We can start to see that people are reapproaching the, the, uh, the way that they approach the rights life and the humanity of the unborn child, partly because of the very same thing that's um, changed the culture in the United States, which is for things like 4D imaging because people, 4D imaging allows us to humanize the unborn child, where previously the unborn child was um, covered by uh, the flesh of the mother, essentially. You, know, the, you couldn't see the unborn child within the womb because uh, inside the woman. Now we can see the unborn child, and people realize that at 12 weeks, this looks like a little human being, because it is a little human being, uh, and previous to that as well. So because of that, I think that the, the culture is going to slowly but surely change in our direction. Now, we are nowhere near... Uh, a point where a great advance will be made mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom, um, but I think you are, and mm-hmm. that's why I think uh, I, th- I think the United States could easily see um, with one more Supreme Court justice who's uh, who believes in the right to life, uh, with one more Supreme Court justice, um, a case could be brought before the Supreme Court in the United States, and you could see the reversal of Roe versus Wade, and that would be huge. And it wouldn't just be huge for you; it would be huge for us because. The, because we have that shared culture that I mentioned earlier on, that sort of anglophone uh, culture, because any kind of progress on your part would also affect the credibility of any kind of progress on our part in the minds of the average Briton. And I seriously think that when the United States gets to the point where you reverse Roe versus Wade and you see much more right to life laws, uh, maybe even a change to the Constitution, I know it's much more uh, you know, further on in the future, but you have seen a great progress in the United States, and if you see it, then we will see it as well. Um, by virtue of of that shared culture, so um, so I was I've been very negative about the United Kingdom, but I think that the hope is on the right to life side, and uh, part of that is due to the hope being on the right to life side on the United States as well as the United Kingdom. Well, I'm sure that would give a lot of us over here a lot of hope because for many of us the situation does look very very bleak, but it is something that we can overcome and this is something that we need to keep in mind whenever we're going to the voting booth 
in 2016 and we're voting for who we want to lead our country and who we want in our Senate and Congress. And Absolutely. That's better. What we do could save thousands of lives over here and who knows how many more all around the world. And a lot of people have this idea that, that politics and religion shouldn't mix, that we should just stay out of it. But it's going to be very hard to advance Christianity as well in a culture where people think that the killing of innocent human beings is okay. That's not going to be a culture that's going to be receptive to Christianity. That, well, that is true, but I, I, would, I would want to point out to everyone that um, with, when it comes to the right-to-life debate, religion is a red herring. Right. Uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, it's used all the time, uh, the, the, the thing of, oh, well, it's, this is just about Christians wanting to impose their religious dogma on the rest of us. I mean, mm-hmm. it's complete nonsense, because although I, I can't be denied that, um, as with me, and I think I've, pr- I've proven by a lot what I've said in, the, in this uh, podcast that I'm a very orthodox Catholic, yeah. um, a very conservative Christian, quote-unquote, as, as the, uh, the culture would say. Um, despite that, despite the fact that the vast majority of rights to life certainly are Christians, just as the vast majority of campaigners against slavery uh, had been Christians, um, or certainly the most uh, prominent ones, regardless of that, um, religion is a red herring, because mm-hmm. the argument for the right to life is not based on religious premises. And even if you are basing your voting on your religious convictions that we should respect the right to life, that doesn't mean that the right to life has to be based on your religious convictions. Um, and I would encourage anyone listening, look, yeah. don't, don't despair of the fact that when you elect a politician and he says or she says that they're, um, they, they're pro-life, they believe in the right to life, mm-hmm. that, um, that they won't get anything done. Because ultimately, uh, particularly with presidential politics, You've got Ray Bader Ginsburg, who is very old and could, you know, either retire or pass away. Let's be honest. At any given point, um, you've also got um, Anthony Kennedy, who is the moderate on the Supreme Court, who has reportedly said that he will resign at the next Republican president. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. But that's it would be great if he did. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Breyer, again, you know, uh, you know, not someone who's necessarily going to be around forever. So these are these are people who who could easily go quite soon. And if you had just one or two other Supreme Court justices, everything, when it comes to the right to life, could change the United States right. in a very short period of time. Yeah. And that's something you need to take very seriously when you're considering who, to whom you, for whom you vote when it comes to, uh, to presidential right. politics, certainly, um, and when it comes to other politics as well, when it comes to the Senate um, in particular, when it comes to the um, okaying of certain um, judicial nominees. Mm-hmm. That's something you need to take very, very seriously. And as I say, it don't, won't just affect you, it'll affect us as well, because mm-hmm. general effects in America take an effect over here too. But that's, uh, and I say to people in this country when you're voting, don't vote on party, uh, vote on personal principles, because in, in our country we don't have parties with views on abortion. I know that in your country, uh, in, in the United States, the Democrats are officially pro, um, in favour of legalised abortion, and the Republicans are officially in favour of the right to life. Right. But in the United Kingdom, we don't have that at all. Um, mm-hmm. and, well, with one exception, you know, the Liberal Democrats, who are a, the third biggest party in British politics, they are officially in favour of legalised abortion. But votes in Parliament mm-hmm. take place on what's known as a conscience vote, which means uh, if you're a Conservative, if you're a member of the Labour Party or a member of the Liberal Democrats, you get to vote on abortion according to your conscience, not on the basis of um, a party whip. Uh, the mm-hmm. party won't force you or threaten you or something like that to vote any one way or, or the other on the issue of abortion. 
Mm. Uh, and that's, I think actually that's preferable to uh, mm. having official party positions because it means that people's consciences on what is a very important issue are respected. And mm. I think that if the United States did that, it would be much better for Democrats, certainly, um, who are pro-life, who, who believe in the right to life. Um, mm. So I would, I would, I mean, I think that the British system is better. So that, but it means that I get to say to people, don't vote, don't vote for the Conservative Party when you vote for an MP. Vote for the MP who is most in keeping with your personal principles and values, mm-hmm. and particularly on the rights of life. And if that means if you're a serious Conservative and you vote for, you know, a, la- a very old Labour left-wing uh, member of Parliament, then you vote for them because that issue is much more important. Than anything else on you know, education policy or or health policy or anything else that they'll ever vote on, that's that's the most fundamental issue of human rights, mm-hmm. and uh, and it should inf- inform everything else you do. Um, so, so yeah, so that that's what I would say to anyone in the United States or United Kingdom, vote for the most pro-life candidate, and um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that. You are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and what we do here, we give it freely, but it isn't free. It costs time, it costs resources some to do something like this, and when I'm booking my guests, I can't give them a single penny. What they do, guests like Peter D. Williams come on of their own free time entirely. What we do around here, we could definitely use your support. And you've heard we're doing a lot. We just got back from New Orleans speaking at an apologetics conference there. We'd like to get to do this kind of thing far more often. We'd like to be able to speak at area churches and do as much as we can free of charge. But in order to do that, we have to have some sort of support. So what I encourage you to do at this point is to go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com. That's where you'll find my blog. And we are working on a website that will be unveiled later on. But for now, you go to a blog. There's a donate button there. You click that. That button will take you to Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike Lacona. You've gone to the right place still. What you do is you just make your donation there, send it in, and then email me or email Mike's wife, Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want it to go to Deeper Waters. We will take care of it. It will be tax deductible. And if you can be a monthly partner, those are the best kinds of partners we have, and we could really use your support. Now, there are other ways you can support us also. We do have some ebooks for sale. The two most recent ones are ones I had at God and Natural Disasters, a dialogue with an atheist on a problem of evil. And a creed for the ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed, that one's entirely by me. And then even before that, we've got Defining Inerrancy, with my ministry partner J.P. Holding and myself wrote together a defense of Mike Lacona and his views on inerrancy, and that, no, he's not going against inerrancy. And yes, that is one, that is the book I have that led to my tangle with James White, <laughs> that uh, Peter D. Williams <laughs> mentioned earlier. Now, if you get any of these books, then yes, some of the proceeds will support us. And of course at the Amazon store on my blog page, you'll be able to buy books on Amazon that way and a small proceeds will go to us. And Normally it'll be books by people you've heard on the show. So if you hear about a book and you'd really like to get it, what better way to do it than to go that route? Now, um, Peter, do you have an organization over there in the UK that you'd like people to support? 
Certainly. Uh, I would you know, love people to support as much as you can uh, Right to Life. Um, mm -hmm. Right to Life uh, to life, all one word, dot org dot uk. Um, obviously, we're a British organisation and we try to get members who are British who can um, you know, to basically pester their members of parliament and things like mm -hmm. that and campaign. Um, but if you're American, you would li love to support us and we need all right. the support you can get. Uh, we really do. Mm -hmm. uh, and please do donate. Go, go on there and, and donate. It's quite easy to find the donate button and to find the donate facility. And we would appreciate any uh, support you can uh, give us because uh, United States, you get much better financial support for your rights life movement than we do in the United Kingdom. It's mm -hmm. much, much uh, more tight here. Uh, really, it really is. Um, than in the United States. So we would love your support, any support you can give. And if you have any uh, British friends or anything like that, uh, please encourage them uh, to join Right to Life and to help us campaign for um, uh, the abolition of abortion and supporting of the right to life of not merely the unborn human being, but also um, people who are in persistent vegetative states, people who are uh, terminally ill, people who are very elderly, people who are d disabled, all of whom are affected by assisted suicide. Um, so any of those. Um, would be we would ha just love your support so please do support us as much as you can um, and of course pray uh, which oh, is yeah. the most one of the most important forms of, of support you can really give mm -hmm. uh, that's that's really appreciated now if when they want to support you what website is it they go to right to life dot org dot uk mm. and right okay. to life is all one word okay now you're talking about the uh, that it's much harder to get support over there in the UK, and that's another point to discuss, is that usually those of us in America, when we think about the UK, if we're Christians, we kind of think of this post-Christian wasteland, and that maybe if you go around, you see a church every now and then, but Christianity just doesn't have the impact that it used to. What's the real situation in the UK? Um, the, say that again, sorry, the situation... What's the, the real situation with the church in the UK? What kind of influence does the church have? Oh, or, I see. Are well, most people are Christians, or what? No, I, th I think that the, the vast majority of, of people in the United Kingdom are agnostic, and certainly very uh, sort of secular agnostic, so mm -hmm. they don't want to have a view on, on religion. It, it, it's funny... In, there's a very big difference between the approach to this issue in France, the approach to this issue in the United States, and the, United, the approach to this issue in the United Kingdom. In, the, in France, um, I get the impression, certainly, that there is, they are taught in schools um, philosophy. Um, they're encouraged to have a, uh, an active view on politics um, and implicitly of religion, I suppose, but by virtue of philosophy. Um, in the United States, you guys have a, a full-blown culture war going on, uh, and you're winning on certain areas and you're losing on others. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's better on the right-to-life issues. It's less good on the uh, issues to do with the redefinition of marriage and sexual ethics. Um, but in the United Kingdom, uh, we are remarkably um, anti-intellectual when it comes to both religion and politics, precisely because in Britain we have this approach of we don't like to offend people. We're, uh -huh. very, we're terrified of uh, of causing a sort of uh, any awkward situation or a ruckus or anything like that. And so, sadly, the majority of Britons don't tend to want to discuss controversial issues. Uh, they'd rather go through life without any controversy whatsoever because it's just too much bother and because it's awkward. And we don't do awkwardness in, in England. Uh, now, that's, that's hugely problematic for us, obviously. Um, and consequently, there's very little influence, sadly, uh, sadly of the surrounding culture by, uh, by Christianity um, of any kind. Um, the official as I say, the state church, quote-unquote, the, the, um, is the Anglican Communion in England, and that is 
a very mixed bag. You get a very small minority of very conservative evangelicals. I mean, really conservative evangelicals. You get a very small minority of very conservative of what's known as Anglo-Catholics, which is to say Anglicans who um, practice a form of Catholic uh, spirituality and worship. Um, and you get um, a lot of very sort of, uh, as it were, liberal, uh, modernistic people as well. Um, certainly, I think that the um, establishment, the Anglican establishment, is like that. But most people describe themselves as C of E, which means that they don't practice it, they don't practice any kind of Anglican spirituality or, or Christianity, but because they were baptised as a baby uh, in the Anglican Communion, they describe themselves as C of E, uh, Church of England. And that's taken just to mean, I'm not anything really, I don't have a particularly powerful or profound uh, um, spirituality one way or the other. Um, I think that there is a vague sense that a lot of people have of they like the idea of heaven, um, they like the idea of God to a certain extent, to the, to the extent that they like a sort of a, a big uh, father figure in the sky um, who will take care of them when they die. Um, but beyond that, there's very little sense of, of proper spirituality. Mm-hmm. And a lot, actually, a lot of people now have a sense of real prejudice against Christianity because they've been told again and again and again on in, in dramas on TV or in debates or in newspaper articles that, you know, Christianity is really quite, you know, um, homophobic and, and, and uh, anti-intellectual and all of those sorts of things. So, they, so you meet a lot of people with those kind of prejudices um, where they don't really know to the degree to which uh, Christianity has a profound intellectual tradition and is hugely important mm-hmm. to the Western tradition. So, um, so there's not really great, a great deal of Christian influence on the culture or in the country but what it does mean, of course, is that um, certainly in the Catholic Church, um, because we've gone through the so horrible 1960s and 70s modernistic um, trans, uh, you know, problem, the transition that we went through, um, the people who are left within the church now tend to be much more faithful. If you're someone who was modernistic, then you don't really you know, spend a lot of time um, in the church anymore because you've gone on full secularism. Uh, you, you've decided to leave the church altogether. There are very few people who are in the same modernistic mindset. Um, they are, there are a lot more higher up in the church uh, in, in certain areas of, of a hierarchy, you might mm-hmm. argue, um, because they're sort of hangers-on after the 1960s and 70s. But actually beyond that, um, I think that the church is renewing itself very much. And certainly the people you see going through seminary, the guys that you see coming up as new priests in the Catholic Church, for example, in England, mm-hmm. um, are almost to a man really sound, passionately Catholic guys, uh, passionately Christian guys. And I suspect you will probably see a, a very similar thing um, in certain um, evangelical Protestant uh, groups as well. Mm-hmm. depending on which ones you're talking about um, there are some there are some uh, ecclesial communities certain denominations that are just I think colonised by modernism colonised by a liberal mindset uh, and there's just there's just no way back for them they're, they're pretty much going down um, but others are as I say if, in, like the Catholic Church um, much more uniformly uh, orthodox by their own historic standards mm-hmm. so so it's a mixed bag really but I think what that means is this has been good for the church because it means that we've been pruned and we are going through that pruning of the, the, the error the ortho the, the heteropraxis uh, the, the bad practice and the bad theology and the bad doctrine that we used to have is slowly but surely just dying out and what will as Pope Benedict XVI pointed out what we'll be left with is, is a smaller but much more faithful church and that's exactly what we should want and when that happens, when we reach that rock bottom where the only people left are really people who, are, who want to be there and who are not 
you know Catholics of tradition but Catholics of conviction uh, or Christians of conviction in other areas as well um, then we'll see a group of people who are able to organize themselves to be properly properly evangelistically missionary mm-hmm. and that will change the culture and slowly but surely we'll come back to um, a better a better state of affairs um, but I'm not willing to wait for that. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I want to make sure that we're doing as much as we can on the right to life effort, um, which is supported, as I say, mainly by Christians, not not necessarily by Christians, but you know, Christians tend to be the people who have that ethical drive to want to change this area. Um, I, I'm, I want us to really sort that out as quickly as we can because we have a responsibility to do so. Um, so, yeah, the, the quick answer to, question, uh, answer to your question is that there isn't very much Christian influence in the United Kingdom um, uh, in various different areas, but it'll become more so, hopefully over time, the case that the church becomes more effective at being a missionary, um, uh, yeah, yeah, essentially a missionary society. I really think part of what's going on here, at least in America, also maybe the same as going on in the UK, is that many of us have grown up with this idea of a sort of warfare between science and religion which is totally bogus Mm -hmm. but anyway that most people think that if you know something if you believe anything the highest way to go about it is science Mm -hmm. everything else is secondary obvious ethics it's metaphysics stuff and things of that sort Mm -hmm. and in reality it's the exact reverse situation that science is a great it's a wonderful tool i'm not going to denigrate it at all but it's not the highest way of knowing things and it is built on most metaphysical foundations and most of our people today in the country don't know those metaphysical foundations whatsoever so they they don't know how to think anything beyond science they don't know how to think ethics they don't know how to think logic they don't know how to think religion philosophy theology or anything of that sort and with me the modern new atheists today who are trying to ride on this bandwagon of science freeing us from religion I, I like to make a comparison to them as if they're a teenagers who have a mom and, dad, mom and dad's car and they're driving around thinking about everything because they have a car and they don't forget who owns the keys to that car mm. they do no, forget. <laughs> you're absolutely right um, the problem is is that as you say people aren't aware of the fact that in order to do physics you need metaphysics mm-hmm. uh, metaphysics precedes physics and the empirical method can tell you all sorts of wonderful things about the universe mm-hmm. what it can't tell you is ethical value what it can't tell you is the you know, e- even the basic uh, premises that should lead you to practice uh, the empirical method itself. You know, the idea that there is a reality out there that can be discovered, that is ordered so that it can be uh, described in terms of laws. All of those sorts of things are metaphysical premises that you have to have in order to then do science. And people have the metaphys- those metaphysical premises are pe- things people implicitly accept when they do science. But there are not, they're not premises that you can get from science. Mm-hmm. Uh, you end up with this sort of attempted circularity with a lot of people where they think, oh, everything can come from science. And they say, well, okay, so um, if you want to say, as some people do, that the only um, things that are true are those that can be empirically verified, can you empirically verify the principle that the only things that are true are those that can be empirically verified? No, you can't. Um, and so you, when you point that out to people, it slightly blows their mind because they kind of assume that science can answer everything. And mm-hmm. they re- oh hang on no it can't and even when you try to justify things like morality based on science as uh, as we know um, Sam, Sam Harris tried to it's completely taken apart because y- you can't do that you, he, mm. he had to assume some understanding of human flourishing which is not a scientific concept right uh, 
In fact, it was very interesting that he, I mean, you, you mentioned that you are a Thomist as I am. Uh, he, it was interesting that he mentioned the words flourishing, which, of course, um, is what um, certainly a natural law Thomist would do um, when we're discussing what the Greeks called eudaimonia, uh, flourish yeah. as in uh, good spiritsness is, I suppose, the, the literal translation of eudaimonia, but literally the flourishing of the human being. Um, he, and he has not the metaphysical competence mm-hmm. to argue for any understanding of, of flourishing, um, but whereas we do. We can point out to final causality. We can point out, uh, not just final causality. I know that the new natural law theorists would go beyond that. Um, but we can go to that and we can justify from first principles the things that we believe in a way that vast majority of people writing today can't. Um, but they assume this basic naturalism, materialism, empiricism, and all sorts of other sort of philosophical concepts that they have no way of trying to justify. Mm-hmm. In fact, just to give a preview for this starts what's coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm going to have my friend Dave Starrett come on the show, and he's written a book recently called "Aborting Aristotle," and he's going to argue in that book. He does. I've already read it, an advanced copy of it. That uh, if we're going to win the abortion debate, we have to return to Aristotelian metaphysics. It's not going mm. to happen any other way. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I mean, there, there's another another philosopher whom you've, you've probably heard of, um, but I would recommend to your audience as well, called Edward Faser. Yeah, a brilliant book called The Last Superstition. Uh, Wonderful which is a book. Excoriating <laughs> takedown of the New Atheist, <laughs> and oh, just wonderful. A lovely, lovely to read. And he's written some other great books as well mm. on uh, Thomism. Well, on Saint Thomas Aquinas. His book yeah. Aquinas is about Saint Thomas Aquinas. Oh yeah. Explains uh, in a very accessible way. Uh, to, an, to, an, to a person who's really willing to work at these kind of concepts um, what's in Tom's Aquinas taught and I think that that's really important and I would really recommend to everyone that they, they uh, read that because he would argue as well that we need to recapture Aristotelian Thomistic metaphysics yeah. in order to have a coherent uh, approach to um, philosophy and, and uh, also apologetics and theology um, and because that's something which is so guided I think I see in God's providence that 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 particular philosophy and that particular metaphysics has had such a positive effect on the church and, and an ability to create the worldview um, that represents truth. I really see that in providence in the, in the history of the church and in the history of Western civilization. I really see that, and so consequently, I'm uh, I'm very confident that, that that rediscovery will really help us to further again the mission of the church as we've discussed. Yeah, the, the last superstition is the number one book I recommend to anyone who's wanting to get a refutation of the new atheism, or just atheism in general. Heck, you have to love the humor he throws out <laughs> in the book, yeah. Gregory, such as when he talks about Richard Dawkins, who doesn't know metaphysics from Metamucer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Yes, indeed. It's, it's lovely. I, I would love to have him over in the United Kingdom, actually, to discuss a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, funnily enough, to, to engage in a lot of theological discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly over natural law. Um, mm. I'd love to have him debate Robert P. George, who I also know. Um, I don't know Edward Faser personally. I've met Robert P. George, and he's one of your great intellectuals. Oh, I'm yeah. a great admirer of Robert P. George. And mm. I would love to see uh, Robert P. George and Edward Faser debate each other in England over the classical natural law understanding, the new natural law understanding. That would be really fascinating. And So I'll try to organise that. I'll try to see if anyone would like to support bringing them over. Um, 
money is again a problem at tights but um but yeah i'd love to see that happen but also uh discussions on a metaphysical basis as well um mm -hmm. there's a group in the united kingdom called the faith movement who take a scotist point uh, view of metaphysics right. and so they would differ with the thomistic view on certain in certain ways so certainly um some of them would have particular um disagreements with um the idea that we can have this concept of nature um so i think that I would love to bring him over to discuss it with them as well, to to have a debate with sort of theologians and philosophers over the metaphysics here, mm -hmm. because I think this is a this is really important to nail down and to be informed on. So, um, yeah, sorry, I, I just decided to go off and I. It, <laughs> it, it, it's all but right. I, well, it, it really does strike me as odd that in our age of science, where we're claiming to know so much about nature, yes, that we actually in many ways know so little about natures yes. that we we know we probably know for instance more about sexuality mm. from a scientific standpoint than other cultures have I mean, there's no reason to really doubt that but yeah. when it comes to the nature of sexuality they've got us beat by mouth mm. yeah absolutely mm. absolutely um this is this is why this matters Mm -hmm. Ideas have consequences, and that's why philosophy and theology really matters. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need to know this stuff. And certainly, people who are going to engage in cultural battle, uh, as we are, a lot of us are, really need to know their stuff on this in order that there can be an informed discussion. But that also means, I think, that the quality of debate in society needs to uh, improve. Um, and the, that's what I'm trying to do in the United Kingdom: is improve the, the quality of debate because. Um, when you have public debates, a lot of the debates that we have in this country are um, essentially what's known as Oxbridge parliamentary style debates. So Oxbridge refers to Oxford and Cambridge and mm -hmm. the styles of debates that go on in the Oxford and Cambridge unions, which are very you know, well-known, famous, long-standing debating societies. And I've debated at both, um, include, and also the Durham um, Union as well, and um, this, the, the, um, the Phil, which is the mm -hmm. debating society of Trinity College Dublin. And the same debating style um, is involved in all of them. And it essentially means a 10-minute speech um, from four speakers, and then a little bit of uh, back and forth, but really mostly audience questions. And there's not, there's, there's not the vigour, uh, the, 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 certainly the, or rather the rigour and the vigour <laughs> mm. of... Uh, of other styles of debate, particularly sort of, uh, Lincoln-Douglas style debates, and I've one of the things I've organised for this year. Um, those who are British listeners would uh, should know that there's a debate that will happen at King's College London uh, between myself and um, uh, Anne Faraday, who is the executive director of um, BPAS. So, in other words, the head of uh, our version of Planned Parenthood, and we were debating the moral status of the unborn human being. Um, Yes, the moral state. What is the moral state of the unborn child? And that will be over two and a half hours on a Lincoln-Douglas-style debate. We will have beginning speeches. We will have rebuttal. We will have cross-examination. We will have rebuttal. We will have audience, a certain amount of audience questions, and then we will have uh, final speeches. And I'm hoping that what will, this will do is raise the bar of debate um, in this country over debating the issue of abortion, because and in fact debating per se, because debate, as I say. If it's only those four ten-minute speeches with audience questions, that, that's not a debate at all. That's just showing off how good a speaker you are for ten minutes and then having a little discussion. Whereas a properly 
um, forensic debates, one that really challenges the presuppositions of both sides, that really brings out the issue. That's mm. the standard of debate we should have everywhere, regardless mm. of what country we're in. And I'm hoping that this debate with Anne Faraday, which will be recorded, and so we'll put it up online. So look for it after February the 24th, when uh, when we will have it in, uh, say, in King's College London, in the heart of London. Um, that will be hopefully a really helpful debate, and will bring out. I'm, I'm hoping uh, I do well enough to bring out the the truth of the rights life position. Mm. Um, but uh, debate debate is something that needs to happen because, as we've said before, we live in a, a culture which is very individualistic, to a certain extent very selfish, and because of that, there is a, a kind of egoism, a kind of um, I can kind of build up my own reality that leads to um, a real scepticism towards debate and towards the value of being challenged. And in uh, Oxford last year, there was a debate that was attempted to, uh, attentively had um, by the Oxford um, Life Society there, Oxford Students for Life, and they tried to have a debate between uh, Tim Stanley, a friend of mine who is a journalist at the Daily Telegraph, which is one of our key broadsheets, key, uh, really key um, uh, newspapers, and um, a guy called Brendan O'Neill, whom some of you may know. Um, he's a libertarian Marxist, but he's a very well-known uh, columnist um, more broadly uh, than I think just the United Kingdom. Uh, he's also known in America, uh, in Australia, maybe mm -hmm. to a certain extent in America, and he's very, you know, absolutely in support of the right to uh, the the right for, for a woman to have an abortion, quote unquote. And they were going to have this debate over abortion culture and whether or not it, it harms Britain, and um, and it was closed down by the fact that it was protested by a number of people on the Oxford University campus. And we've seen this happen again and again on university campuses in Britain. And I know that you have a, a very similar problem in the United States where mm -hmm. there are some people who feel that you know, a university, even though previously we would have thought of as a university as a place where we have real debate, you know, it's a, real, it's a place where you really explore ideas and you challenge ideas and you learn. Uh, now uh, there are a lot of students who think, no, university should be a, quote, safe space where, whereby no one is ever offended, no one is ever challenged, um, particularly over issues to do with sexuality or oh, abortion. Yeah. Uh, and so consequently uh, it was shut down um, it, they, they stopped it from happening and that's appalling for freedom of speech and freedom of, of, of ideas in any, any, any democracy that's wanting to thrive has to be willing to have that challenging uh, space where people can really challenge each other on ideas and really have a free uh, debate and it's, it's not happening because now we feel that some people feel that they have a right to feel just you know, totally unchallenged and that's really, really, that's poisonous and mm. very dodgy. Um, and I'm hoping that improving the level of debate publicly will show people that you can have a really good and actually very charitable um, debate between two people of completely polar opposite views that informs people of the nature of the debate that's being had. Um, Anne Frady and I get along very, very well, funnily enough, mm -hmm. uh, even though we, are totally dis we totally disagree on this issue. And I'm hoping that the... Um, the civility, the charity, and the rationality that comes out in that debate, assuming it goes ahead, assuming that we don't have a problem, <laughs> but please God we won't, um, assuming it goes ahead, that, I'm hoping that will be a debate that really shows how debate can push forward understanding. Now, what do you think needs to be done in the UK the most to change the abortion culture, and what do you think needs to be done in the US the most to change it? I think the biggest thing that would change uh, abortion culture it's an interesting phrase isn't it abortion yeah. culture um, I think that the humanization of the unborn child is something that needs to happen more and more um, mm -hmm. we already we, we already see it happening in the United States mm -hmm. uh, 
back in the 1970s, it would have been, I think, much less conceivable to hold the, the opinions that uh, people have now on the right to life than they do. Um, I think it would have been much easier to talk about abortion as a, as a positive thing. Now it's almost taken as writ that it's, uh, it's a bad thing, um, possibly not amongst every single community, but even though there are radical feminists, quote-unquote, I don't call them feminists, though I think they're feminists, they don't really mm. hold a, a genuine understanding of, of, of what is um, forwarding the rights uh, of women. But regardless of that... Um, I think that you've improved your culture by virtue of, again, the 4D images, the humanization of the unborn child. And that will only continue more and more. We see the polls in, your, in the United States getting better and better for the, the rights life movement. Mm-hmm. I think that needs to happen as well more in the United Kingdom. Frankly, I think right to life um, groups um, can do a lot by really pushing forward the case for the rights to life of the unborn child, um, by using um, social media, by using YouTube. One, that's one of the things I really want to develop in the United Kingdom now is the use of those uh, resources, which are, I think, are incredibly underdeveloped. Um, so I'm hoping that Right to Life will be doing that in the coming year and in the coming uh, few years. Mm-hmm. But you guys are already doing it. You just keep on doing what you're doing, really. Um, I couldn't suggest an improvement um, beyond simply, um, as I say, making sure that the Supreme Court does change, and I think right. it will in the next decade, I think you will see that. Um, certainly if you get a Republican president next time, which you have every chance of getting. Um, so, yeah, I, I, don't, I can't really um, advise you better on doing what you've been, apart from doing what you've been doing. I mean, I do think that the, the one problem that we do have in this country is that some of the um, most unhelpful things that have happened in the United, uh, in the United States rights life movement have um, somewhat tarnished people's view in this country of the rights life movement more generally. And I'm talking of things, not, not just sort of violence, which I realize is a very small minority of people in the United States who have ever done that, but for some reason we have this understanding that, oh, it's happened a lot. Um, it's more... Um, the sort of the campaigning outside abortion clinics, the sort of when you have um, the, 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 the picture of the unborn fetuses. Um, we've kind of gone full circle now because they sort of introduced this lightly in the beginning of the, uh, of the podcast. But I genuinely think that that's unhelpful. Um, and I, I don't think it's something that... Um, we, we see it happening here, and I think that what that does is it spoils people's view of the right to life movement because rather than seeing us as what we are, which is people who genuinely care about women and unborn children and want to help them both and want to bring them out of uh, what we see as not only the tragedy but the crime of abortion, um, people see us as just sort of women-hating uh, religious bigots who mm-hmm. just scare women. Uh, I think that that's really un- unha- unhelpful. Um, and unfortunately, because it's happened in the United States, it's been brought over here, some people are doing it over here, and because of that, it ruins the view that a lot of people have. Otherwise, moderate people who might be open-minded, um, it ruins their view of the rights to life movement. So less of that, I would have said, more of the kind of thing maybe that, that 40 Days for Life do, more of the things that um, the, the uh, mainline uh, rights to life groups um, are doing, and just continuing to make the case as humanly and as passionately but as sensitively as humanly possible for the humanity of the unborn child. Mm-hmm. If you could make that basic case and just ram it home again and again and again, it's, over time, people will really have their understandings formed by the way that that framing of the debate changes their perception. And that, when, you, when you've done that enough, that's when I think people will be ready for the abolition of abortion. But it will mm-hmm. only happen, this is my last point on this, it will only happen if you also have a culture of life which helps women who are in um, crisis pregnancies, quote unquote, who are in unplanned pregnancies, 
and who are not given the support that they need uh, right. materially. A lot of women go through abortion because they, they, have no, they feel they have no other option. And it behoves those of us who really care about the right to life to have the charitable um, social help for women who are in those situations where they don't feel they have any need for abortion because mm-hmm. they're given the material help they're given the help uh, with maybe um, you know, work or whether it be uh, taking you know, child care or you know, everyday things. Um, those are the things that they need. Maybe safe houses where you know, they can escape a, an abusive boyfriend who's trying to pressure them into abortion. Think of every single situation that could possibly lead a woman to abortion and try to cater for that so that no woman should ever feel she needs to go for an abortion. That would be the most positive thing the Rights Life Movement can do. And, and it would change people's perceptions, those of, us, those of them who do have a negative perception of the Rights Life Movement. I, I do know that uh, what's probably the parallel over here to what you got right to life at the the Life Training Institute oh, over yes. here, ran by Scott Kusendorf. I interviewed Jay Watts a couple of weeks ago on it, oh. and they're working on a YouTube channel right now. And in fact, they've received a sponsorship that they're going to have a television show sometime. Which I mean, this is excellent. If we could get this changed. In a decade, and yeah, I think getting a Republican president would be great at uh-huh. that. If we could get Roe v. Wade reversed in a decade, I think it would just change everything. It definitely eliminate abortion much more over here. But it also helped further the spread of Christianity in that way, because in a culture where human life is held to be sacred and morality is upheld, it's much easier to spread Christianity. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, but let's be, be very careful that if we, if it, if it were the case that abortion was made illegal mm-hmm. in the United States prior to the right kind of um, the right kind of social means being put in place that would support women who felt they had a need for abortion, then I think that that would actually possibly lead to um, a worsening situation whereby people were convinced that oh well because Mm. we now have uh, abortion is illegal and they see all the social problems that are caused by that you know women who you know go for you know uh, illegal abortions and things like that um i think that people would be uh would, would slowly drift the other way you need to have a culture in place whereby that's there the support that's that's available is there in the first place and then abortion is abolished so that they can fall back on that. Those women who do feel like they need an abortion feel, actually, I don't need an abortion because I've got all this support. Um, we need to be very serious about making sure that we are comprehensive in our approach. Um, and it, but yeah, ultimately, this is a political battle. We can't get away from that. It's a moral and political battle. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, yeah, if you, but first off, get, an, get a Republican candidate, for goodness sake, who is, <laughs> who is right, supportive of the right to life because you know, that does, it doesn't necessarily follow that there will be one. Um, the vast majority are, but you need to make sure that happens. Right. Uh, and also, yeah, those of us, those of you who are, you know, Democrats, who, who, you know, are traditional Democrats, those of you who um, are left-wing in your views on economics and other things, you know what? Join the, the Democratic Party and try to get it to become more uh, supportive of the right to life. It can happen. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult, but if you do it, if you really work at it, it could happen. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, in it, basically, wherever you are in your life, uh, whether it be. You know, a stay-at-home mum, whether it be someone who's working in politics, whether it be someone who's working in business, you could you know, funnel the right kind of, uh, by his own personal wealth, uh, the right kind of funds to social programs or social help for un- unplanned pregnancies. No matter where you are, you could affect the right to life battle in some way. Mm-hmm. So you just to discern what it is and do the, and even if you're just a voter, if that's the only thing you can do, 
Um, and for most people, it's more than just that. But whatever you can do, give money to Rights Life charities, the best that you can discern, join the Rights Life uh, political lobby groups that can you know, really make the best difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, do everything. Write to your congressman, write to your senator, write to whatever it is. You could do so much. And I think that if the entire... Um, the entire right to life constituency within the United States and the United Kingdom was awakened um, as well to do all that it could, then we would see change happen much quicker and many more lives would be saved. Um, so, yeah. Well, we've only got a few minutes left in the show, and it has been a really fascinating talk hearing about everything that goes on across the pond. And honestly, what you've said has given quite a bit of hope I me. Mean, if you think that this can be changed in a decade, I mean, most of us would probably think maybe a generation or so. A decade, that gives us a good deal of hope here. Um, if uh, people want to find out more about you and how to get in touch with you, do you have a blog, a website they can go to, anything? Well, at the moment, the best way to contact me personally, because obviously I moonlight as a Catholic apologist as well as do right to life work, um, is to contact me on Twitter. Um, I'm at PeterDCXW. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all one word, Peter, and then capital D C X W. For the best, uh, or also please do. Um, I didn't mention this earlier on, but if you could also follow me on Twitter, but also follow Right to Life on Twitter as well, Right to Life UK, all one word, and also uh, like us on Facebook as well. Uh, it's right again, Right to Life UK. If you find us, uh, it's a lovely orange um, uh, uh, icon that we have, um, so you'll be able to find it quite easily. It's Right to Life UK. Please do support us on social media because it allows us to get the message out and, and you know, like what we do. Um, but to contact me personally, yeah, I would say Peter DCXW. Feel free to tweet me, and um, yeah, I'll be very happy to respond in any helpful way that I can. Um, but yeah, and as I say, please, above all, please pray for us in the United Kingdom, and please pray that uh, God's will be done, and that we do the best that we possibly can for the service of the most vulnerable human beings in our society. Is there any uh, final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Um, well, I think I just made it. Uh, but um, <laughs> beyond that, um, if you if you could think of anything else that you'd like to uh, have me do, if you think of anything else you'd like me to talk about, I'm hoping to launch a blog uh, later on this year. Um, when I there are so many things I have to do. Seriously, it's one of the things I would love to do, but I don't have currently the time or the wherewithal to do. Um, but if you think of anything you would like me to discuss or debate, uh, then do let me know, and I'd be very happy to do it. Um, I want to sort of develop as many skills over time as I can and as much as I can to help uh, people across uh, the internet um, because you know ultimately the best way we contact each other at the moment is through the internet and if I can do debates in this country that can uh, benefit others if I can write things that would benefit others um, I'm very happy to do so so as I say I'm, I'm very open to your suggestions and to your uh, yeah and I pray that I, I'm able to do that. I suppose that would be the, the last thing I would say. But yeah, please do, as I say, pray for us, support us as best you can, and just work as hard as you can to support the rights life of every human being. Well, the, the request for help goes both ways, because I want to say thanks for having, for coming on here and giving your time to my audience. And I really hope we can see you back here again. If there's anything we can do to help you out, let us know. Absolutely, and let's have the uh, the, the uh, theological issues we were discussing earlier on. That would be a lovely thing to discuss as well, because they're mm-hmm. very interesting, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, certainly it's it's always lovely to have um, meet, sort of charitable dialogue between, uh, for example, Catholics and Protestants oh, who yes. realise that each other are brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh yes. who have you know important disagreements. You know, the disagreements between us on those issues aren't unimportant, but the best way to have them is in that context whereby we 
affirm each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and are able to have an honest disagreement that is loving and that is thoroughgoing. So I'm very happy to come back on anything you'd like to talk about. Um, and yeah, God, God bless you and good luck to you. It's wonderful to have uh, to be talking to you. And I'd like to remind everyone before we go also that next week, Dee Dee Warren is going to be on. She's going to be giving her stance on abortion. It should be an interesting show.